Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 165 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Susanna Harwood Rubin. Susanna is a New York City based yoga teacher. She's also a writer and an artist, and her work is rooted in South Indian philosophy. She teaches Devi Soul Yoga, which combines yoga asana with mantra, myth, and mudra. And she's the creator of 30 Things and Writing Your Practice Workshops and Online Courses. You may know, I mean, I, unless you've been hiding under a rock for the past 20 years, you probably do know that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I'm a breast cancer survivor, and so is Susanna. Susanna has chronicled her journey with breast cancer for the past year and a half or so on Instagram, and that's actually how I discovered her. And I was just really moved by her writing and her willingness to share the challenges and the joys and the grief that goes with this process. So we just get into it. We share our stories with each other. This is really much more of a back and forth conversation than I usually have. It was, to be quite honest, nice for me to be able to process certain things with her. Just I know so many women have gone through breast cancer, but not so many women who have deep yoga practices. And we talked a lot about how her practice supported her through the process and her writing, obviously, supported her as well. We also share our thoughts and feelings about Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And like most people who've been through cancer treatment, breast cancer treatment, they're mixed. They're mixed feelings. I wrote a blog post about it a few years ago that I'm going to post on the show notes page. I went back and read it and I feel that it's still worth sharing. I did a lot of research for that little blog post And the last thing I want to say is if you're going through it right now, we are with you holding your hand. I wish I could wrap my arms around you in a big embrace from the mother. And the last thing I want to say is that if you are feeling like you should be getting a mammogram and you are faced with the conundrum and the confusion of all of the different guidelines and your doctor is advising you against it, follow your gut and advocate for yourself. Screening guidelines are confusing to say the least. In fact, I will post a chart from the CDC that compares all of the different organizations and all of their different recommendations. The U.S. Preventative Task Force a few years ago changed the screening guideline to the age, the annual screening guideline to the age of 50. And that is at odds with radiologists. So it is a very individual decision, but I think that sometimes women are not even told that. We're just told what the screening guidelines are, and if you don't, quote-unquote, have additional risk, if you don't have a family history, if you don't have BRCA genes in your family, we're not often told you still have the option. And that there are, of course, risks to getting screened for anything, including false positives, but it is up to you. And I just encourage you to do your reading and to advocate for yourself if you feel that it's necessary. Okay. Enjoy the interview. So Susanna, thanks so much for being here today. I have been following you on Instagram for more than a year, and it's just nice to connect and be able to have this conversation together. I almost said face-to-face. We're not face-to-face, but we're like mic-to-mic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really honored to be on it with you. And to be honest, I'm honored that you reached out at all. And I had had no idea really how many people were following this Mm -hmm. journey that I've been chronicling. So I was sort of like, oh, I had no idea she was like following this. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I know. It, It is an interesting part of social media that you don't know how many lives you're reaching and touching, which is pretty neat. Yeah, it is. I think it's one of the positive things. And and I think it's it's interesting too, because there's so much that's negative about social media now for good reason, about tearing us out of, you know, real life and getting our peeling our eyes off of screens and stuff. But I have to say that for someone going through what I went through, this intense breast cancer journey I've been through, it was a lifeline and of support, of information, of knowledge. And it really 
was a wonderful thing mm-hmm. used in the right, you know, for me used mm-hmm. in the right way of support. Yeah, actually. completely. I completely understand that. I mean, for me, I feel the same way about like the internet in general during my breast cancer process. Like I spent a lot of time on the breastcancer.org message boards and found them really helpful. Like after I went through treatment and everything, I had this weird lump in my elbow crease. And I mean, it was a hard lump and it scared me so much. And I went online and I was like posted to everyone. Has anyone ever had this? Blah, 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 blah. I had a little bit of lymphedema. And so and like five women were like, yes, I've had that. It's totally okay. It's going to go away, you know, and then sure enough, it did. So I feel like the internet is, it's, it's everything, right? It's, it's all, all the bad stuff. And then it's all the, all it the is. Stuff too. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually surprised to hear you say you could handle the cancer boards. Cause I could not, mm-hmm. I could handle the Facebook groups, which mm-hmm. were much oh. more like, Hey, you know, like the questions being tossed out. What do you do with this? I found, and, and I was told this by other people who had gone through it, that the, the cancer boards are sometimes the people who are really, and this is a whole topic I'm yeah. opening here, but yeah. people who are really attached often to their disease oh. and, and want to talk about it all the time. And I found I would go on and you hear all the horror stories because people were like, Oh, this is happening to me and this is happening and it's awful. And I'm so this, and, and this side effect, you hear about all the weirdest side effects on them yeah. because those are the people who are writing in or who are really in a way addicted to being part of this community and don't know what to do without it. And yeah. So I'm, I'm opening up a whole can of worms here, yeah, I know. Interesting but, perspective, for sure. Yeah. You do have to yeah. kind of like tread carefully. I was pretty yeah. careful. And there were some online groups that I couldn't handle being a part of. So I told I'm with you. Yeah. But let's let's start at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you started in the middle. Now let's, let's yeah, go back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So first of all, are you one year out from diagnosis? Or are you almost a year? Well, I'm actually like a big trick question because what happened is four years ago, I was diagnosed with DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, Mm -hmm. which means that there's carcinoma in the ducts, in my breasts, and it's in situ, meaning it's still, it's not moving, it's not invasive. Mm -hmm. And that's considered stage zero cancer. Mm -hmm. But I had little dots of it all over my breasts. So they said, well, preemptive mastectomy. And then I went to a specialist who said, well, looked at all my films and said, this has been in you for years. Like this goes way back. All these little things we saw, like it's been in you for years. And I made the decision to do active surveillance, which was just keep getting monitored. Mm -hmm. And, and I did a lot of like behavioral modifications and dietary modifications to support that. But I have to honestly say my stress level was so intense that entire time. And as we now know with the body-mind connection, that whatever you're doing right, stress can override everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the reality. And I, and I do believe that that's what happened to me. And I also believe it would. And so it finally, ultimately, a year and a half, oh God, a little bit more than that, a year and a half ago, um, was found in my lymph nodes on the right side. Like I found, you know, so... Oh, you, yeah. you, you felt like something and you went in. Um, I did. And I went in and they did lots of like actually two years ago and they were like, no, it's not cancerous. There's nothing there. But they said, it's just, you know, your body could be fighting an infection, this or that. And I was like, okay. And then I went back and this is at Sloan Kettering. And then I went back, you know, half a year later for my next checkup and they were like, oh, there's something there. Ugh, that must so maybe my body was fighting. I was floored. And then of course, cause you know, cause I'm a yoga teacher and a writer and artist, you know, et cetera, I'm paying independently for health insurance. And so no health insurance company will work with a cancer hospital. So then I had to switch in the middle of this turmoil and this heartbreak and finding out that in fact it was in my lymph nodes. And I, a had to absolutely have a double mastectomy now and B there would be some form of treatment depending on what we found in my lymph nodes, meaning, you know, they're very vague about it, hormonal, chemo, radio, Mm. who knows. And then in the middle of that complete meltdown panic, I had to research doctors and find a new hospital. So I basically just sat there with my best friend next to me, like Mm. holding my hand saying, make this call now, make this call now. And thank you, Michelle. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And, And my family is incredible. And I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by incredibly supportive people in my life, but it was pretty brutal and I ended up at NYU Langone Perlmutter Cancer Center, which ended up being a great place for me. Oh, good. So, yeah. yeah. No, that is really stressful. I mean, I, I think 
I wrote to you in an email that for me, the diagnosis phase, the treatment phase, and then sort of the post recovery phase are very distinct for me. And the diagnosis phase was the worst for me, mostly because of what you're describing. Like there's so much chaos and there's so much unknown, right? Like you get this diagnosis, but you don't know what kind of cancer it really is till it comes out of your body. And you don't, you know, there's just, and then I can remember anytime my phone would ring and it would be the the hospital just like, oh, I don't want to answer it. And it rings constantly and there's just constantly more news. And so, yeah, that's so hard that you had to switch hospitals. And I, yeah, it was really rough. And I, and I agree completely with what you're saying. Like the fear of the unknown really is the worst. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the worst. I mean, given I went through nine months of surgeries and treatments and I still have to have a corrective surgery for one side. So it's crazy. That'll be next year. But I mean, yeah, I had the surgery, the bilateral mastectomy, and then four months of chemo and then two months of of reconstructive surgery and then radiation and the radiation. Oh God, that was more than I thought I'd have too. Yeah. So that was two, you know, basically two months because it's five days a week. Mm -hmm. So it was all pretty brutal, but I have to say like coming in after my double mastectomy, getting the, like the drains taken out Mm -hmm. and then being like, okay, having like a moment, this little moment. And I did write about this. I remember on Instagram, which was really my lifeline just to get this stuff out of my head to have this moment of elation. Like maybe everything's okay. Mm. Maybe it's not as bad. Maybe it's not so bad. I'm going to, and then right after I had the drains taken out, I had two hour break and went to my surgeon and I was with my family and we showed up and she was like, well, we were very surprised to find that it was a nine out of 10 of the lymph nodes removed. And this oh. is much more aggressive than we imagined it was. And therefore treatment is going to take a very different form than what we thought. And I'm sitting there across from her and I had to ask the question, am I going to die? I don't know if you had to ask that question, but for me, it was a serious question. It's like, it's a nine out of 10 of my lymph nodes. It was aggressive you know, went from being nothing for years to being super aggressive, Mm. like with a snap of a finger. And, and she said, not now, someday. Yes. (laughs) I love her. You know, it's like a very no nonsense, you know, and she just educated me on everything that's going to happen, but I was in a state of shock. And it's a weird, if you have to ask a doctor, am I going to die right now of this? It's, it never, you're never the same afterwards. And and I don't, not in a bad way necessarily, but in sort of in the way that you mentioned, which is like the not knowing was the worst. And like after this, I had a total meltdown and like that afternoon and stuff. And then was just kind of settled into it. Mm -hmm. And given I I was incredibly, I mean, my body felt pretty brutalized during all this treatment. It was very, very rough, extreme treatment, but I wasn't that scared anymore. Yeah. You just kind of do what you have to do. In a yeah. way, because you have a plan that you have to execute, yeah. you just execute the plan. You know, I didn't do chemo, so I feel fortunate that I didn't go through that aspect. So I know if there's, to a certain extent, I don't know what I'm talking about because other people have had different treatments. Everyone's experience is so different. But that pre-phase, you know what the other thing that I remember from the the pre-treatment plan phase, like you're diagnosed and then... I can remember my OBGYN calling me and giving me the news, who I just love her so much. And Sophia was two and she was running around our house in a bathing suit, rain boots, and like a fairy princess crown or something. (laughs) And I just looked at her and I just was like, oh my God, I just like felt the weight of the world. And, and then my doctor just said, just, we're just going to make a list and we're going to just tick through all the things you have to do. And you're just going to do them. And so she said, you know, first called this surgeon and et cetera, et cetera. And I was at a different hospital system first. I was at CPMC and I had actually heard of this surgeon before. She's like that well-known in the area. And, you know, when you call an office and it takes them like a week to even get back to you, if they're a really popular doctor, I remember the person calling me like within an hour. And then I can remember, she didn't have an appointment, but then I called UCSF and they emailed me back within an hour. And then they called me and scheduled me like for the next day. And I just remember looking at Jason and being like, 
oh God, I'm on like the fast track here. This is not good. Well, this is not it's, good. They're, yeah. like, they're like trying to get me in as quickly as possible, which I of course appreciated, but it was like a whole different experience of healthcare at that point. So I found my lump while my daughter was nursing. She kind of turned her head in this uncomfortable way and and I felt it. And the mammogram had the biopsy. And then I was faced with a choice of having a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. And it was really, really, I didn't know what, it was hard. I still like wonder if I did the right thing. But because you had DCIS, did they... Did they suggest a bilateral because it was scattered in both breasts? It was scattered all over. Yeah, both breasts. And it's cellular. There's no lump. There's nothing you can feel. It's kind of funny because I'm seeing all these people being like, feel it on the first, you know? And I'm just like, hey, guys, guess what? That's not the only kind of breast cancer there is out there. So I don't do that whole feel it on the first thing because that would have done exactly nothing for me. Yeah, there was no lump. It was cellular. I mean, the biopsies, I had nine biopsies over the course of four years and the biopsies I had to have were like, they had to have me like, I mean, they were crazy. It wasn't like some little needle thing. It was a full on mini surgery where I had to be on a table and they had to use, you know, all kinds of equipment because it was in my cells, in the ducts. Oh, Suzanne. Yeah. So I had no choice. Like I had little dots of it in so many places that they said, you know, it's like, oh, we have to do four lumpectomies in this breast. And I mean, I'm a petite woman. I'm a mm. small anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like they're like, we're basically doing a mastectomy if we do yeah. four lumpectomies. So I'm like, yeah. And yeah. besides, they said you're so prone to it that, you know, obviously it's if we did that, the odds are you'd get more. Mm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, one of the things that you and I both wanted to t- talk about is just how our practice showed up for us in going through breast cancer. So I'm not sure where to start with that, but I would just love to know for you, after all these years of practicing and teaching, did you feel like you had something to lean on because of having all of those years under your belt? I have to say my practices were everything. I mean, I, I, again, as I said, I know we were both fortunate in that we have a lot of loving, supportive people around us. I don't know how people get through it without that, but honestly, I'm like, there's nothing like putting your practices to the test. You know, it's really easy to be like, Oh, I'm going to get up and, you know, do chant a little and do a little asana and do some pranayama and this and that. And my practices are so important, but when things really completely collapse in your life, that's when you find out whether or not these practices are really doing something. And I've got to tell you, my practices were no joke. I don't, I don't think I would have gotten through it Hmm. in as healthily as I did. I mean, I was, I I cannot tell you the things I went through in chemo, like the, just the side effects, the, this, the, that, the collapsing, the throwing up, the, anemia, just the bone pain. Like it's just so many things, you know, and I just really connected to my practices. And for, I recently wrote a post on social media about noise and sound because no one writes about this stuff really. And one of the things that happened to me during chemo was my body became so loud inwardly with all the stuff that was happening. And this is coming from years of meditation, years of listening to my inner body and years of practice and knowing and saying, what happens if I move my, you know, my toe an inch in this direction as we do as yoga teachers, you know, we really like investigate our bodies. And I was aware of this, just, it just felt like so much noise in my body, so many things happening that I couldn't stand to listen to music anymore. And I tend to, and I even, I usually, after my surgery, I just had basically Vedic chanting on a loop in my apartment because it's very lulling and calming and connects me to the temples in South India, where I usually go once a year. And even that, I had to stop that. I just wanted as little as possible Hmm. making noise in my life so I could just settle into the noise that was happening inside me and come to terms with it. It was only, it's kind of funny, and it lasted for a long time. It lasted for months. And it's only been this, the past couple months that I actually really started listening to music again. 
which is crazy because I'm like a total music person with like obsessed with like all the, you know, whatever I'm listening to. And so it's been a joyful reentry into that for me. But it was almost a year of my life I couldn't handle listening to music, which is just bizarre. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. So I would chant inwardly. I do mantra half the time, just silently, I would chant mantra to myself and I would do, but those, I, I kind of veered off of the practices thing, but that was part of it. It was like, how can I meditate? How can I go within? How can I be in conversation in a really, really deep way hmm. with my body? Mm-hmm. And that was what I was doing. I was like, I'm in this deep conversation. I, I need like the peripheral stuff to go away. I'm just sitting here talking mm-hmm. to my body. And years and years of chanting mantra and having these experiences I've had with darshan, you know, like Mm -hmm. being in the temples and stuff that kicked in unbelievably. And I felt a deep connection to, to my body, to spirit, to everything that I've always said I was doing. And it wasn't surprising, but yet the extent of it was, it was sort of like, Oh, I guess I really have done a lot of work, you know, but I, it was, I'm still amazed at it, actually. I'm still in a state of wonderment yeah, about it. That's Did so that great. happen for you? I'm kind of curious if that happened for you or? I actually chanted the whole day of my surgery. I was supposed to go into the OR at like 1 p.m. And, you know, you have to get there a bazillion hours early. I can remember. Yeah. I can't. I think we checked into the hospital at like 6 a.m. And then you're yeah. just sitting there doing all these different things and markers remember uh, um so i like chanted internally that whole day while my mother paced the hospital room yeah and you know she had so much more anxiety than me i just wanted to go in and get it out of my body and so it actually helped me with her pacing because her anxiety was really difficult for me in that moment she was awesome for the rest of it but that day was really hard so i chanted a lot and i also this is such a total aside, but my first surgery, I had an all female team from top to bottom. I had anesthesiologist, surgeon, every assistant, which was really the coolest thing ever. When they wheeled me into the room, I looked around and I said, you're all women. This is so cool. And they all laughed. But so I had a lumpectomy in my left breast and my breasts were really, really always really big. But then after nursing, they were like really big and really saggy. So they did a lumpectomy and they did a reduction and a lift on the left breast. And then months and months and months later, I did a lift and a reduction on the right breast. And so after my surgery on the left side, I was recovering and I ended up, before they took the drain out, I got an infection. Yeah. And um, it was while Jason was in Hawaii. He, so we had had, we have this retreat every year and we usually go and he couldn't cancel it. I mean, like contractually, he couldn't cancel it. And so he was here for the surgery. And I think he left like the next day. And while he was gone, I got this infection. So I had my drain in for a really long time. I can't, I mean, I can't even remember. I want to say like a month. I mean, I had it in for so long. Yeah. Mine were in for a week and that was rough enough. Yeah. It's yeah. It's really rough. It's really, ugh. And it was like, in fact, it was just gross. So I really just didn't do much practice in that phase. Like, I mean, I feel like the whole thing, as you said, was one big, long practice, right? It was just one big, long feeling the feelings, watching them arise, staying with them, watching them dissipate, you know, trying not to get sucked into all of the intensity and the fears. So in that sense, I felt like my practice was always with me. And then once I started to recover from the surgery, I was couldn't wait to get back on my actual mat and, and do the physical practice. That was awesome. But I also, I've never been a runner. And I just, once I was well enough to really exercise, I would just get on the treadmill and run for like 30 minutes. Like my life wow. depended on it. It was so interesting. And I I was really aware of it, that this was a completely different form of movement that I'd ever done. It was like, it's so interesting. (laughs) It was really interesting. It was partly like, I just had so much anxiety to burn and I couldn't, I just couldn't burn it with my yoga practice. And it was also partly this way of feeling really alive. Like 
I felt so yeah, happy. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. I felt so happy to be alive and I felt like this like inner drive. I just felt this inner drive that I'd never felt before. And that drive has actually stayed with me in my physical life since all of this happened. I I'd spend a lot more time at the gym than I ever did in my life. And it's obviously more balanced now between yoga and the gym, but it changed something in me. That's interesting. Yeah. I have to say it's very, although I did not start running, <laughs> but I, I do understand what you're talking about quite well because I'm, I'm also going to the gym a lot now, but part of it for me is I basically, out of my nine months of treatment, seven months of that, I was sitting on my couch because I was, I was anemic from chemo and, you know, I couldn't be, I live in New York city and I couldn't be in places where people were going to be sneezing on me and mm-hmm. coughing because I had no immune system. And on the second kind of chemo I had, you know, you have to worry about fungal infections and your, your fingernails and toenails falling off. So there's no way I was going to go to even a gentle yoga class. Like there's no way, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like that something that would never even affect me normally make my toenails fall off. So there were just so many things I dealt with and like a chemo cough that was debilitating it just on and on and on. I don't even remember. I kept records of all this and occasionally I look at it and I'm just like, Oh my God, I, that yeah. happened to you. I don't even remember that. So for me, all of a sudden I missed, you know, all the times I was sort of like, eh, you know, do I want to go take a friend's class or do I just want to stay home and eh, do a little like 15 minute practice on my mat and call it a day, you know, <laughs> now I'm like, I'm going to the gym twice a week and I'm actually working. Someone's helping me work out because I feel like I need to completely rebuild my body. And I have now I'm finally at a place now where I'm getting really strong again. But for a while I was like, I could barely lift something. I could barely lift a bottle of water. Like it really was that bad from all those months of, of atrophying. Mm-hmm. And also it's like my muscle wall has been pulled away from my chest, all this stuff that happens in a double mastectomy. Right. So that affects your pecs and how you pick things up and, and everything. Chaturanga, that's still a work in progress, mm-hmm. trying to get back there. But I had this incredible drive. And, you know, it's easy in, in New York to get lazy about being like, you know, there's so much to do here in New York that you're just kind of like, eh, uh-huh. I think I'll just stay home and watch Netflix or I, you know, I won't do anything. And all of a sudden now I'm just like, Oh, there's something to do. I'm going to go out. Oh, no problem. You're tired. Like I'll hop on the train and like, come see you. That's and it's, great. I'm inter- I feel like I'm like 23 year old again in New York city being like, yeah, sure. I'll do whatever. Let's go out. Let's do it. <laughs> it's crazy. So I've had much more of a drive to like, like, and I think part of it is just like cherishing life more and wanting to feel alive, wanting to like, touch that aliveness and like push into it and get its feedback and be like, look, I'm alive. I'm doing this. Look, I'm alive. I'm doing this. Look a lot, you know, cause I really didn't know mm-hmm. what was going to happen to me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So yeah, that drive is definitely there for me in terms of living and experiencing and doing things. Yeah. When you were going through chemo, what was the part of your inner foundation that helped to get you through? And for those of us who know people going through chemo, what can loved ones do that is most helpful during that phase? Great. I'm going to take that as two questions. Yeah. I hope I don't remember. If I forget the second one, ask me again. Okay. <laughs> the first one, because it's so specific to me and my practices, I had a deep Kali sadhana and the sadhana meaning spiritual practice. And Kali is, of course, the the most ferocious of goddesses. Mm-hmm. And my traditions are, as I've said, very rooted in South Indian um, Sri Vidya tradition. So like if I'm using a lot of terms that some people don't understand, don't worry about it, everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I was right and asked me about it. But for me, you know, I've been going since 2008, I've been going to Tamil Nadu, to the great Nataraja Shiva Nataraja temple and the great temple of Tilaikali, among other temples. But that, that's really my spiritual home. And very happily finally getting back there again this January. But that sadhana, there's nothing like it. Like having a spiritual practice was everything for me. And I know that like there may be people listening who are like, oh, I'm not religious. Well, I don't consider myself religious either. Mm -hmm. But, you know, someone's spiritual practice might be nature. Mm -hmm. And if you can go outside and put your feet on earth, which I cannot really do here in New York City, like that can be your spiritual practice. You can connect with that. Your spiritual practice could be connecting with your ancestors, you know, and there's all of that for me. But really, my spiritual practices are rooted in these traditions. They're really like tantric traditions. And the Kali piece was huge for me, because when you are in when you feel like your body 
is in the fire Mm -hmm. and it's been cut open, ripped apart, things inserted under the skin, sewn up and you're being poisoned basically. I mean, but it's medicine, but it's also poison, you know, and you know, it's not really a time for Lakshmi, the goddess of beauty. Right, 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 right. (laughs) It's not like, oh, you know, flowers in abundance. And, and, you know, you want to be, you want this person holding your hand or the being or the spirit or the sensation of being held by the one who can take it, Mm. by the one who lives there. It's like, here I am Mm -hmm. and I need to be with that because there was no separation. So Kali, you know, is the she is all possibility. She is everything that can happen. And that's why she's terrifying because life is crazy. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden one day someone tells you, you have cancer, you know, and not necessarily, but we all, every single person has had something awful happen to them in their lives, you know, regardless of what it is. So where do you go when that happens? And it's not going to be rainbows and unicorns. This is the furthest thing I'm mm-hmm. telling you. Chemo is the furthest thing from rainbows and unicorns. So you want to be with that other energy, which is ferocity. And if you can, for me, Kali is like the energy of ferocity and the energy of loving yourself and being ferocious enough to self-advocate, which I had to do quite a bit Hmm. because I had to find my first oncologist and get a new one who was wonderful. First one was problematic and negligent. And so I had to learn how to stand up for myself and do things like that at the same time that I'm having this crazy inner conversation in my body, like what's happening today? Oh, am I going to pass out? You know? So it's no joke. So getting in touch with that inner spiritual practice was everything for me. Yeah, I love that. And a lot of people were surprised at how well I came out of it. I mean, I still, you know, I'm going to have side effects for, you know, I don't know how long, but forever, who knows? But I'm in much better shape than a lot of people are going through it. I think the other piece you asked me about was friends and family. So yeah, yeah. yeah. The best thing friends and family can do is to just absolutely be present, even if they say nothing, hmm. to be present constantly. And then if they do say things, to never make assumptions, ever make mm-hmm. assumptions about what you're going through. And thankfully, I have great friends. I dealt with it because I was so public about things. I did deal with a lot of, really inappropriate comments and Mm. really huge assumptions about what I would want to hear. And understandably so, like people are doing their best, you know, when people reach out, you get really testy when you have cancer because you're kind of like, I don't want you to say that to me. Don't say that to me. That hurts my feelings. I don't want to hear that right now, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're freaking out. You're trying and you're trying not to. Mm -hmm. So you get very like, don't say that, you know, and I had to really control that impulse in myself, recognize it for what it was and say like, thank you so much for making this gesture toward me because there were like a lot of things people would do. I mean, there was one person who I'm not close to at all, but I can remember one person on social media and I can say it cause I'm not close to her and she probably won't hear this and it's fine. Yeah. But who wrote down when I announced I had to have a cell mastectomy who wrote underneath actually two people said this to me, both female yoga teachers said, Oh, isn't that great? Now you can have perky breasts. Oh boy. And I was just like, and I, I just, I read them the riot act. I was like, I had perky breasts already. Yeah. Like, why would you make the assumption that I didn't? And to say anything, to tell me, look at the sunny side Mm. when it's clearly like your issue of you wanting perky breasts. Like, It's just so inappropriate. It's so inappropriate. And someone else is like, oh, now you're going to have big breasts. And I'm like, well, I've never wanted big breasts. I really love my body. I've really, like, I didn't want my body to change, you know? And it was, I'm like, really? Female yoga teachers? Wow. Yeah. And I know it's that they don't know what else to say. And many yoga teachers, and I I see myself doing this too, have an urge to fix people and help people and be like, we're going to make it better. Mm -hmm. But you can't. Like, you can't make my cancer better. Mm -mm. So all I need is for you to be present, say, I don't really know what to say. Mm -hmm. That's fine, but I care. That means means the world to someone going through cancer. That means everything. To say, just to be honest and say, I don't know what to say. I love you. I don't know what to say. I care about you. I don't know what to say. And I want to say something and I'm sorry. I don't have the words. Like when people said stuff like that to me, it made me cry with gratitude Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because because of the honest, the honest gesture of love. Mm -hmm. 
and, and it was the people who yeah. tried to tell me what to do or tried to fix me like, yay, isn't it great? Look on the sunny side. Now you're going to have perky breasts. Well, I had them. Now I'm going to have, now I'm just going to have silicone perky breasts instead of real perky breasts. And by the way, my perky breasts were what got me in trouble because dense breast tissue is more prone to cancer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway, that's like a whole rant. And I've done this rant. I did a whole thing on Instagram about what not to say to someone going through chemo, what not to say, like and a lot of stuff, like in chemo, people love to say, don't worry, your hair will grow back. Oh gosh. Exactly. I and I just am like, oh my God, really? Is that how hair works? I had no idea. <laughs> that was super helpful. Oh my God. Like, don't belittle my sadness. You yeah. know, don't belittle what I'm going through. You know, to me, it speaks to, and I'm like you, like, I don't have a lot of people like this in my life, but the people that are like this, you know who they are. And it speaks to the inability of someone to, like, to see someone else's discomfort and pain and to also to cope with their own discomfort and pain. And so they put a silver lining on it or they yeah. act like it's not happening or they, they see, they try to change, distract, right. Change the subject. And yeah, it's really detrimental. I mean, in the long run to a deep intimate relationship, right. Because like you said, yeah. you just need someone to actually be there. And when someone is distracting or not able to sit with it with you, they're not there. They're not there with you. No, they're not. And I'm compassionate about it too, because I just realize people don't know what to do. Right. And they kind of flail out in all directions and they totally. think they're doing the right thing. And, and I feel badly because I know some people will listen to this who like have said these things to me. Yeah. So like all of you who are listening, if you said this to me, don't worry, I still love you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it definitely could have been handled differently, but now they know mm -hmm. because when people said those things to me, I told them, mm -hmm. I said, that's, that's not the right thing to say to me. You know, that's not. And they were like, wow, it's a couple of people said, thank you. You know, I didn't, I didn't know. And I was like, yeah, well now you do. And you know, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I don't think I corrected people. I tended to just like walk away or, you know, and for me, it's funny, the, the habit or the response that kind of got under my skin that happened to me a lot was, again, I, I feel like you, I understand why people did this. It's a really hard situation to deal with, but I would notice that they would actually talk through their own fears. Like, Oh yeah. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm glad at least you don't have lung cancer <laughs> or like, and you're like, I, yeah. or, you know, or, Oh my gosh, like we're getting older. We're all going to get these things. It's like, no, you don't have this thing right now. I have this thing, you know? <laughs> Oh and, my God, I know. <laughs> so it's just this kind of like stream of consciousness fear yeah. coming out. I, I feel like you, I totally get it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've been awkward in many situations, but it is nice to, to just let people know that you don't need to fix it. You, you don't need to make it better. You just yeah. need to let the person know that you're there. And what I kept going back to, which is, you know, a quote that like, probably everyone listening to this knows, but Ram Dass's quote, we're all just walking each other home. Mm. I mean, that for me, it's like, it kind of says it all. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you say after that? We're all just walking each other home and everything, even when I, that comes out of my mouth, everything in me sort of relaxes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because honestly, you know, this situation is temporary, <laughs> you know, and we're all just it's like, sort of like, who's going to walk with you? Yeah. It's a rented you know? house. Gonna, it's a rented house. Who's going to step up right next to you and, and, and walk, you know, walk along that road and walk through the fire and walk through the aftermath, you know, mm -hmm. and there's such a deep sweetness to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned at the start of our conversation, having to ask your doctor, you know, am I going to die? And you mentioned never feeling the same in a lot of ways after that. Can you talk more about that, how it's changed you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to bring in something unexpected here, which is that there are two times in my life where death really shifted something in me. And, you know, of course I've lost people and, you know, raised Catholic actually. So went to wakes as a kid and saw lots of bodies and stuff, you know, <laughs> so I'm not like freaked out by death, but you know, I do live in downtown Manhattan and so the first incidents or incident in my life of really being changed by death was watching the Twin Towers burn on 9-11 oh, wow. from Washington Square Park, which is my neighborhood. And, and there was some weird thing that happened. 
where there was a before and an after. And after I watched that happen, my fear of death that I had had, you know, my whole life was just gone. It was like it had been erased or like someone had flipped a switch. Hmm. And so I looked into that a lot. And that was right after that, that I ended up doing my yoga teacher training in January, 2002. So, and I had no intention whatsoever of being a yoga teacher. It just was the only place that felt meaningful to me. I was in the art world and it was crazy. And, you know, and I just was like, I just want to, I don't want to be in a room by myself making pointless things when 3000 people just died in front of me. Mm. You know, I want to be in community and co-create something meaningful as a human being. And it was and not that, I mean, I'm, I still make art and everything. And obviously I write, but something shifted in me. And I realized that in terms of the death thing, I'm still very scared of pain. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I don't want pain. I'm terrified of pain. Pain is awful, <laughs> but I'm not scared of ceasing to exist anymore. Mm. And I really felt, and that also comes from my, you know, my spiritual practices that I've developed since then. But at that point, I didn't really have them so much. And it really was just like, oh, I get it. One day you're just gone. And I, and I felt, I don't know, I just sort of something in me accepted that. And so this second time this thing happened, this weird deep connection to death or the possibility, possibility of death happened for me. I mean, I've lost lots of friends and, you know, we all have, but was when I had to sit, I'll never forget sitting across the table and my parents were there with me looking at my surgeon and asking her, am I going to die of this? Mm. It's just so surreal. Like this is something you've seen a million times in movies, mm -hmm. on TV shows, and it's just like part of a script, mm -hmm. you know? And all of a sudden, the script has become your life, and it really means something. And I actually really didn't know whether she was going to say maybe. You know, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And something in me shifted, and I was just like, I could be gone tomorrow. And I think this is connected to that drive. When she said no even though I was still like reeling in this devastated state from getting this news about chemo and radiation. And there still was this seed of drive inside me that decided I was going to get through it as well as possible. And that I wanted to live. When I came out of my surgery, May 29th was my surgery. When I came out and, you know, it's pretty devastating surgery. I came out of it. And when I was finally alert enough, I mean, I was on like oxycodone and, you know, there is a reason why sometimes you have to take that. And I can remember opening up like my Instagram to check in with people and see what was going on. And I got the news that Anthony Bourdain had just committed suicide. Oh. I just talked to a friend about this yesterday, actually. And I was saying how much that affected me because he's a hero. If you live in New York, you love the guy, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like, I have you know, lots of friends who knew him and all this stuff. And it was this weird thing of like, oh my God, this, this beautiful person with this amazing life, you know, he opted out and here I am like on oxycodone and on this and on Valium and like, you know, barely able to move my arms. I can't sit up by myself, you know, in bed, but I want to live and I'm committing to living. And so, and then of course it was you know, a few days, five days after that, that I had to ask my surgeon this question. So that whole week was this strange time of like choosing life, not choosing life, choosing, you know, and then, and that's when I realized it's like, oh, I do have this little thing at my center, this little seed, this little bija, this little something that is like, I want to live this embodied life for as long as I can. That's so beautiful. Thank you. There's the story of Anthony Bourdain's suicide and then your choosing life reminds me of this Grace Paley poem. It's so beautiful. I can't remember what it's called, but I'll send it to you and I'll, I'll put it on the show notes page because it's, it's, it's almost that exact story. She's like an old woman and she's recounting a boy who commits suicide who she hears about and she, she says something like, and here I am choosing this life, this life. It's quite remarkable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, for me, I, I didn't have exactly the same experience, obviously, but um, but I did have the experience of feeling like having cancer was really surreal. So that in the weeks leading yeah. up to my surgery, I was still 
working uh, and I was freelancing. So I would get up and, you know, the, the nanny at the time would come to take care of Sophia, which was good because I needed like space to have some emotion. Cause I tried, you know, not to be too emotional in front of her. She was so little. And I would go to my local cafe where I had always worked and I would sit trying to work and I would sit just staring at other people at their tables, you know, having conversations and laughing and another table they're studying and another table. And I would just think, I have cancer. I have cancer. Nobody knows yep. I have cancer. And I would think, I wonder who else has cancer. And I would walk around all day long thinking, I wonder who has cancer around me. I have to say, I know exactly what you mean. I don't usually say that to people. I know exactly what you mean, but I do know exactly. That was exactly my experience. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, I can remember, oh, that there was one other really vivid, vivid moment where at that time, the cancer center that I would go to was right across the street from this amazing little tiny little Vietnamese restaurant and it's a really popular little restaurant. And so Jason and I went in after one of the appointments and I think he was just getting takeout. And I was standing in that restaurant just thinking, like, just, just last week I could have come to this restaurant and been totally carefree and just enjoying mm-hmm. my soup and not a care in the oh, world. Yeah. And I was watching these college girls, you know, talking to each other over their soup and chattering away. And it was like you said, just this reminder. There's just so many moments we take for granted. And yeah. I do that now still. And I, I always just try to remind myself, you know, you're not in the midst of a tragedy right now. You're not in the midst of, right. <laughs> of a healthcare crisis. You're not in the yeah. midst, like you just take this moment in, enjoy the soup. You know, I swore swore to myself, I remember thinking like, if I get through this, I'm going to come back here and I am going to enjoy that soup. (laughs) I hope you have. I have. (laughs) I have for sure. I have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was so, it's so remarkable that you say that because I've actually never talked about that day when that thing of you're looking around and you're like, who has it? Who has it? Who has it? And I I also had this experience of like, when I was in a dark place with it, I was like, you have no idea. Like I'm sitting here at this table and you're looking over at me and you're assessing, you know, we all like look at each other and we're like, maybe you're this, maybe you're that, whatever. You're not thinking about me at all. And, you know, I wish she'd move over a little or is she going to leave the table soon? And you have no idea of the screaming inside my head. Like you have no idea what's happening to me internally right now, Mm -hmm. like what I'm up against. And, And it was just sort of, it was that weird thing that I think like almost kids get that like, you don't, you know you don't understand, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. And I found, cause I felt so kind of trapped inside myself before the surgery and everything inside this deep, deep sorrow and this fear. I would actually go, as I mentioned, I live right near Washington square park in the middle of Grant village. And I would go into the park at night, you know, cause it was mid May and I would go into the park at night and sit on one of the benches in the darkness and cry. Mm. And it was because I needed to be able to not just be trapped in my own head and my own apartment. My, I mean, get, you know, again, yeah. tons of I had huge support system, but there was something about being anonymous, mm-hmm. but in public and being able to like, let it go. Like I'm not okay. Yeah. Like I'm keeping it together so well. I was still teaching my classes. I mean, you know, up until a few days before my surgery. And I announced it like, I said, Oh, you know, you know, if anyone, I'm going to be taking a few months off and like, just, you know, everything's fine. Blah, blah, blah. If you want to know why, you know, stay after class and mm-hmm. people, and then I would tell people and watch them burst into tears, you know, people I taught for years, but it was like, even there, I was keeping it together, mm-hmm. you know? So there was something in me that needed to let myself fall apart in public. And that actually probably speaks to a lot of the fact that I'm a control freak. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, I needed to fall apart and I needed to do it publicly and I needed to let myself sit on a bench in the dark, in the park, in springtime. Like I needed to be that person sobbing, mm-hmm. you know, because New York is like filled with that. And I was like, okay, today that's me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. New York is filled with that. I mean, that's the thing about city life that's so different is it it happens in public spaces. Mm-hmm. It all happens, all of it. Yeah. It's nice. I think it's nice that you had that. Yeah. That you I had a, a space. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting now because similarly now I have days 
I don't think about so much, you know, now, but like, I'll be on the six train, which is like <laughs> the messy, like crowd overcrowded train on the East side. And every once in a while, I'll just look around and think every single person on here is dealing with something. And if there's something in you that like sought like that sort of like, Oh, I got out of my way. And why is that person taking up two seats with his legs? And why is, you know, all these things that you go through, like in your mm-hmm. mind, why is that person eating fries on the mm-hmm. subway? Disgusting. <laughs> like all these things. And why, why, you know, why are those two people like yelling at each other at the far end? And then you just think, wow, you know what? Think of where you were a year ago today. Mm. Like you don't know what's going on in any one of these people's lives. You have no idea. And it it definitely fosters a lot of compassion, you know, and tolerance. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. I still, I still go through that too. I still think about it when I'm in public spaces and yeah, absolutely. So part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast right now is because it's October, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I wish more people would have real conversations like this to raise awareness. I think that this is sort of like the most effective thing. And I will just preface this question by saying the first, so I was diagnosed in September. I had my surgery in October Mm. during breast cancer awareness month. And it, for some reason, it just, the sight of a pink ribbon just pissed me off. I know it still does for me. That's basically what I was wondering is, is yeah, how you feel about it. And I have a really hard time with it too. And then I feel badly because mm-hmm. I know that it's empowering for so many women and a visual symbol brings attention to any issue. So I know that it's been very effective, mm-hmm. but I do think that for me personally, you know, first I'm like, don't ruin pink for me. Cause like pink <laughs> is the Navy blue of India. So don't ruin pink for me, please. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. I've never heard that before. Oh, it's Diana Vreeland who is like, you know, at Vogue and like yes. pink is the Navy blue of India. Oh. So I'm like, don't ruin pink for me, please. I love pink, but, um, I don't want to associate it with cancer, but also I do think that there's this tendency in our culture to sugarcoat things and make them palatable and, mm-hmm. and, and make them like, if we can come up with catchphrases and a cute symbol we can actually talk about this thing publicly. And I'm like, no, I was on the burning grounds with Kali. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) no, 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 no. There is nothing. There is nothing, not one thing pretty about cancer. Mm -mm. And what you do with it may be pretty. You know, I think what I've done with it to an extent, I hope is pretty what you're doing with it and fostering conversation and stuff about it is, you know, pretty, so to speak. But the cancer itself is atrocious. And I think, it bothered me that people, I had a couple people say, oh, I really, you know, I had a male friend say to me like, oh, at first I was like, what is she doing? Why is she sharing this? And I, I just, it just felt really uncomfortable, weird to me. I'm like, well, of course it does. How do you think, how do you think a double mastectomy felt to me? I'm like, don't read it if you don't want to. And I got mad at him. I was mm-hmm. like, don't read it if you don't want to. I'm not doing it to make you feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable. You don't have to follow me. Just mm-hmm. go away. You know? But what I am doing is being like, this is what happens. And I'm, I'm trying to be a resource for other women and say, and like, and also educate people say, this is not some cute little pink ribbon thing. This isn't like, yay, I have bigger boobs or yay. I have, you know, perky boobs. Like, are you kidding me? This is major surgery. This is like, come on, let's get real about how bad this is and how serious this is. And I'm not asking for anyone to feel badly for me, but I'm asking for everyone to create a real dialogue surrounding it. And I can't, I have a deep aversion to like the pink ribbons and, and I'm sorry for people listening who, who feel that they're empowering and I support you too. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I do, I do. I just can't handle it. Yeah. I, I definitely support the individual people who mm-hmm. are behind it. For me, it's like the corporate part of it that just yeah. makes me bonkers. Like, yeah. you know, selling a, a phthalate laden perfume in the, uh. within the name of breast cancer or, you know, yeah. I remember, I don't know if it was right after my surgery or a year out of diagnosis, the NFL had where like all the players were wearing pink. And I, I, I get it that that's, it's helpful to have an American yeah. symbol and men seemingly supporting women, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually benefit anyone except a corporate team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It yeah. doesn't, that doesn't, it doesn't. And I think this is sort of a whole other can of worms, but Another thing that bothers me is that because we have this month 
the media feels the need to cover it in some way. And I feel like what I noticed, have noticed in the media is that there's just so much confusion about overdiagnosis. You know, I've seen a lot. Yeah. yeah. I've seen a lot in the media about how earlier screenings have not reduced the mortality rate. And that's correct. And it's super frustrating. And it's more of a reason that we should be paying attention to metastatic breast cancer and right. we're not because that's too ugly for people to want to look at and talk about. But because of that, I feel like the media has skewed things into saying there's so much overdiagnosis because p- people have been diagnosed at the in-situ phase like you were. Right. And that's yeah. being called overdiagnosis. And it's like, it's only overdiagnosis if every person who's diagnosed with DCIS or LCIS is told they have to have surgery right away. Right. That's when it's overdiagnosis. And I, I think if you go to any center that's decent, they're not going to do that. So I have like a whole, I have a whole beef about that, that just still, still bugs me. And I also think, you know, there's a woman who I used to work with. She's a freelance writer. Her name's Catherine Guthrie. If anyone is interested in following her, she's great on Twitter. She's because she's a health writer. And so she stays on top of everything. And she had a double mastectomy and she chose to stay flat. And so she talks about that a lot. And I think that conversation, right, is, is worth having of like, there are many different options. They are all okay. They are all your personal choice, right? That would be another, instead of people saying like, oh, at least your boobs boobs are going to be perky. It's like, well, maybe I'm going to choose to go flat. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's like, no, I was way too vain, but exactly. I completely agree with you. And I do know of people like through the Instagram world who made that choice and were just like, this is it. Yeah. 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 And, and also you shouldn't feel vain for wanting to make the choice that you made. Like Mm -hmm. we, we we're fortunate that we have a choice and I think like no guilting, no more guilting and shaming women about this whole thing. Even like the breast self exams, which I think are fine if you can do them, but I even think there, women sort of sometimes feel guilty that they didn't find it or yeah, it's just no more guilt. And well, no more also, shame. as I said, for me, it would have done nothing for right. me. Exactly. I mean, I did like absolutely nothing. So I worry a little bit about that field on the first thing because you got to acknowledge like, you know, they saw calcifications mm-hmm. on mammograms and they were like, hmm, calcifications are a sign of there's a cell shedding and that could be cancerous. And that's the only reason I had that done. There was never a lump. Hmm. Part of my cancer was lobular and that also doesn't form a lump Mm, because it grows in a line. So. Yeah. No more guilt, no more shame. Yeah. (laughs) It's a horrible disease and it exists and we have to do everything we can, but guilt and shame don't help. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. How are you feeling now? How's your body I mean, I'm, feeling? My body feels great. As I said, I've been going to the gym. I've been doing, I already got in a good practice when I woke up this morning, just on my mat. And I'm still regaining my strength. Now I feel like in the past few weeks, finally, I feel strong again. Not that I didn't feel strong before, but like, you know, I had expanders in for my implants. Mm-hmm. For people who don't know, what they do is when you have your double mastectomy, if you choose to get implants, they have to put an expander almost all the time. There are different ways, but almost all the time under the muscle wall. So you have your pectoral muscle pulled away from your rib cage. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. And expanders put underneath and they slowly inject them over the course of the months of treatment with saline. So you can gradually, or if you don't have treatment, they do it over the course of a few months. So you're slowly stretching out your muscle wall so you can eventually have silicone they get swapped out. You have to have a whole nother surgery. You get opened up again, and then they put in the silicone. So the expanders are are extremely uncomfortable. And and do you have to have? Do they start doing the expanding like after all of the the chemo and radiation are done? Are no, no, no. It's during. Oh. So yeah, I mean, which is fine. You're just like everything's happening to my body. Whatever. <laughs> like when you feel so lousy during chemo, you're just like, yeah, whatever. You know, now stretch out my muscle wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, I was worried because I was having that done. 
I couldn't really use my pecs. And all of a sudden, your pectoral muscles are on are not flat against your ribcage. There's something underneath them. So you can literally, after you've had implants, you can flex your breasts. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Everyone who's asked someone you know who's had a double mastectomy, because usually most of us are pretty funny about it, we're like, oh, yeah, check it out. <laughs> and um, so you can flex them because the muscle's now on the outside, as it would be for a man, oh, you know, gosh. or, you know, someone who's had breast, you know, removal. Yeah. So it's very odd. And so, but for a long time, like my pecs, it was so like, I had a lot of contraction. I have, I'm pretty, I was very, came into it very toned and with like a pretty toned body. And I don't know if that's why, but it was, it was challenging. Although I didn't, ha- I had a lot of myofascial work done to ease it up. So it didn't hurt so much, but I couldn't even pull down. Like I live in this old factory building. I couldn't even pull the shades up and down in my apartment there. You know, it was like, there was so much I couldn't do. Yeah. I lost so much strength. I lost so much power that I had to really, you know, it's taken me a while to like pull it back together and get back in shape. So now I'm finally in this place where I feel like, oh, I'm really strong now. You know, when I finally could start doing handstands and forearm stands again, that was huge for me yeah. because I yeah. usually do those every morning and mm-hmm. I couldn't. And now I'm and still they're not, you know, I used to do them in the middle of my floor and now I do them against the wall mm-hmm. and slowly I'm doing, you know, getting back to doing forearm stands in the middle of my floor and there are days where it works and days where it doesn't. But yeah, I finally feel like my body feels good. Unfortunately, I had something called capsular contraction right after my surgery, reconstructive surgery, which was before my radiation. And that sometimes the body just reacts to the silicone implant and contracts. Mm. And it contracted a lot. And so it yanked that side of my body, the right side up. I'm probably horrifying people who are listening. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Like, oh. Yeah. But it contracted and lifted up. So when I came out of my surgery, like, and the swelling went down like a week later, I was supposed to like, look like the way I'm supposed to look now for the rest of my life. And I wasn't, I was totally lopsided and one's high up and one's low down. Oh. And I was devastated. Oh. And that was the beginning of last December. And then radiation started beginning of January. Mm. So I was just devastated. Like I was, that was when I, it really hit me and I got depressed because I was just like, really, I've gone through all this. And they're basically like, yeah, you'll have a corrective surgery after radiation, but you have to wait months after radiation to do it until, because the radiation will make it worse. And so then the radiation made it worse. So I'm waiting a full year and hopefully fixable. Like that side, my right pec is so tight and so gripping. And I'm just hoping like it can all be fixed. They said it can be, but I'm waiting a long time because radiation damage continues for six months to a year after the radiation is finished. Yeah. So if you have as much as I had. Yeah, I had, that's why I had to wait so long to get my reduction and lift on the right side because I had radiation on the left and it just like changed the size yeah. and like the, the shape and everything for so long that I had to wait six months and then they did the surgery and I still have a difference between like, yeah. <laughs> like the, the swelling went down even more on my left side after the next few months. So I still, my right side is still bigger than my left. I'm like, come on. This uh, is come just on. I know. I decided yeah. to wait a year because it's just oh, so much smart. has been done to my body. My yeah. radiation oncologist actually, who's, I love you, Dr. Perez. You're so awesome. But um, she was like, I would wait a year, Susanna. You had so much radiation. I would wait a year. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, I'm going to be lopsided for an entire year of my life. But then again, I'd rather have the outcome ultimately be good. So yeah. I'm waiting. Yeah. yeah. How are you feeling mentally and emotionally? I'm feeling good. I mean, I started seeing a therapist who he's great. He has, he's definitely has a spiritual background, a history as a Buddhist and stuff. And which is not my tradition, but I wanted to be with someone who understood what it meant to have a sadhana, spiritual practice and, and could lead me on meditations inside my body. And he's really wonderful. So I started seeing him sort of toward the end of radiation, I think. And that was really helpful. And now I feel like I'm in a much better place. I mean, my body feels good. I feel vibrant. My energy is fantastic. I'm excited about life, you know, (laughs) and really grateful for so much. And so it's the one thing I have to say has been challenging after nine months of treatment was really beginning to get to work again. And I still feel like I'm procrastinating a lot more than I used to. And because there's this kind of strange existential thing of like, oh, well, I could 
I could write that article I'm supposed to be writing or like get that new book proposal in, but I could also just watch Netflix. <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, you don't have this choice because you have children, but I'm like, well, I could really just watch Netflix. And you know what? No one's going to know. No one but me is going to care. It's only going to affect me. Yeah. And so yeah, that, sounds, that sounds like fun. I'm going to get some snacks and watch Netflix. And then like, I'll be like, God, what am I doing? Like, mm-hmm. what about, you know? And it's taken me a while. And I feel like finally, um, in the past few weeks, things have kicked again. Things, and I think it might be that September thing, but a lot of stuff has kicked back in for me, both my physical strength, my kind of focus on my work has kicked back in. Yeah. It's a lot, yeah. actually. So I'm in a good place right now, finally, you know. It's the fall. The fall always does that it's to me. Fall. You yeah. feel that, that like all those con- years and being conditioned of going back to school, it get kind yeah. of it helps your brain kick it? in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing well and that you're feeling well and that you're feeling good about your life and the future. And I, I just thank you so much for talking to us today and, and for being here, Susanna. Thank you. And congratulations on five years clear. Thank you. <laughs> I went to my oncologist last week to have like the official appointment. And he said, okay, well, so now I'll see you in a year. And I went, no, wait, wait, a year. That's too long. <laughs> I was just not, I was in yeah. a way it's like, it's another stage of surreal, but it's, it's, yeah. he kept saying, it's good, Andrea. It's good. It's good. And I, okay. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks, Susanna. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 165. And Susanna has a new course starting soon. It's called 30 Things About the Goddess. So go check it out. If you enjoy the podcast and the work that I do, please support it by leaving an iTunes five-star reading and a fabulous review. It's very helpful. And until next week, enjoy your practice.